Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, lots of chatter about how truthful and transparent our leaders are being. Do you want to know all the information, despite how stark it may be? Those are the debates leaders are having now. We'll cover that and COVID-19 from every angle, all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's get an update on everything that's happening in regard to cases. Uh, The new numbers in Ontario, 2,793 in Ontario. Uh, I think it was 401 new cases. Uh, The death toll in Canada is at about 127 with over 10,000 cases uh, countrywide, uh, 10,132 at this point to be exact. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, uh, faculty member, human uh, human and social science and as well health policy advisor with Wilfrid Laurier University and is with us now. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you again. Uh, great to speak to you, and I hope you are doing well. Uh, just some of your thoughts and, and maybe a different angle, uh, a different point of view on uh, the Prime Minister being questioned about models. We've seen them in the in the United States, how they've they've painted worst-case scenarios, I guess, for the U.S. and, and, and what they can do to contain what they have. Um, how important are these models? Is it worth the public knowing this information? Uh, I think that the, it's fair for all of us to ask for those modeling and that data. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, Scott, what's difficult about that is I think that the government so far has been transparent in many ways. I mean, they're really putting all the information they have available to the best of their ability uh, online, to their Twitter accounts, press briefings every day. We've commented about this before on your show, how Canada is showing leadership and the transparency and information. On the point of modeling, we have to remember that even me as a health policy expert, it's, this information is complicated. It's not easy to understand. I look at this modeling data on a daily basis. Uh, they're highly uh, mathematical. There's algorithms, algorithms to it. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that even if this information is available, for the general public, it's going to be exceptionally hard uh, and for some experts to really decipher what does that actually mean. So I personally think that one of the reasons why we're not putting that information out yet is because we don't have consistency across the provinces on that data. So it's, it's for example, the, the way I like to explain it is if you had a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet, you really got to make sure that all the columns and, and rows uh, fit into your equation before you can press enter. And right now, I think what the government's trying to do is get all that data into that spreadsheet before they can release it. Uh, what about in regard to supplies? Because we're getting the same sort of conflicting uh, uh, information. Um, Premier Ford was pretty uh, forthright about it this week, saying, you know, he, he was very much concerned that we don't have enough. Yet we keep hearing from the federal government, yet, yet there is enough, but we're hearing from health staff uh, in the community that they're in short supply. So where are we with that? Do we have enough? Well, with Health Minister uh, Haidu, she said finally yesterday that, no, we don't have enough. That's the first time they've really said that. Uh, same sort of thing. Should, should, is that the sort of information that... Uh, you know, that justifies where we are now is the fact that we don't have enough. That helps to explain to the Canadian public why we are where we are and why the process is the way it is right now. 
I think this is a clearly defining moment in terms of crises. This is what crises do, like COVID. What happens with those things is that you get different information from different sources. So quite simply, I don't think that's going to end. I think we will always continue to have people saying that we're in short of supply and some saying, no, we have enough. Uh, I think the reason for that is people who are on the front lines are worried that their supplies will run out. So they'll continuously ask for uh, ensuring that there is a continuous supply of those uh, things that they need, especially with protective equipment. So uh, this is not specific to COVID. I think if you look at any crises that ever happens, you will always have this sort of back and forward between do we have enough or do we need more? Uh, the, what we'll really be telling is uh, what the frontline workers are saying. I think that's going to be the biggest indicators. You know, our policymakers and our politicians could say all they want about what they're supplying. At the end of the day, is it getting to those people that we we need to make sure they get them? In this case, it's the healthcare providers out there trying to deal with this pandemic. Uh, and we're hearing reports still that they are in shortage. So I think time will only tell on that one. So, uh, as as far as you know, what is this? What is the the situation? Is there uh, is there enough? Are we still are we ex- experiencing shortages? Because we're certainly hearing of of nurses and such that have to reuse reuse the masks repetitively. That we're we're stockpiling these in order uh, if a, a wave does come in. Uh, is there enough supplies on the front lines? Are there enough supplies on the front lines? Can I tell you, one of the reasons why I think this is a very important question is because we don't know what the future looks like when it comes to numbers, right? So as we can tell now, we're surpassed the 10,000. There's a good chance that we're going to have an increased number of cases. So when we talk about is there enough supplies, it's not also just about right now. It's also about the future, about the weeks to come and months to come. Will we have enough face masks for the next uh, two months if we're going through with this, right? Like, so that's, I think, where the issue becomes. And that's why it's so exceptionally hard for any of us, for anybody, actually, to say we will have enough. Because it all depends on how well we are doing with addressing the pandemic. If we get ahead of this and we see a reduction of number, sure, we will have enough supplies to last us for a long time. But if we continue to see an exponential growth in the, number, in the numbers, we can predict all we want, how much we need. But those numbers really will be, will be the determining factor of how much supplies we still get to need. Uh, we know that, uh, and, and correct my numbers if I'm wrong, but there's somewhere around 6,600 people uh, pass from the common flu uh, on, on an annual basis. We're at 2,793 right now. Uh, or I'm sorry, um, uh, 127 deaths right now. Uh, is there a chance that we can this could climb as high as the common flu? Uh, that's a uh, you know that's hard to answer because I, I I'm not sure. I think that we're seeing it all depends on our who is getting COVID-19. Uh, if it continues to exhibit the general characteristics where we're seeing it mostly with the elderly and immunocompromised. Yes, we could see the death rate increasing. Will it surpass that of the influenza? That's hard to tell at this point. I think it depends on the duration of this pandemic and how long it's going to take. You know, for a long time, we've been saying that this could take months. And I think the duration is going to be the key factor. But I I do appreciate that we're all changing our narrative and focusing on the death rate. I think that's going to be exceptionally important, Scott, because it's no longer about the total number of cases because 81% of people will be mild and will recover. It's going to really come down to this death rate. Can we control that death rate? Uh, your thoughts on that? It's sitting at 127 now. Um, how? Why is it important to keep the death rate, uh, I- 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 attention on the death rate, as well as the amount of cases, which are over 10,000 now in Canada? 
Because I think the death rate will tell us how well our system is being able to respond to this. If we see the death rate is increasing at a, at a slow rate, that tells me that the system is being able to adapt. That means that in simple terms, that means we still have capacity in ICU units to take care of most critical cases. So therefore, they won't proceed to, God, God forbidding, death. So that to me why I think a lot of countries are actually now even looking at the death rate being the determining factor of how well the system, the health system itself, is able to respond to cases. Uh, okay, so what, at what? And here's another hypothetical question. You talked sure. about the death rate. It's now at 127 in Canada. At what point does that death rate? At what figure? What number does that death rate go to before you are concerned about that? Uh, good question. I think that uh, that's going to be depending on the total number of uh, cases we have in the whole entire country. I think once we get to the thousands, yes, we will be. I think we will see much more extreme measures. Uh, from what I've been monitoring over days, the, the death rate has not been exponentially increased. We've seen a massive increase in the total number of cases. But in terms of deaths, the total number of deaths, we're, we're at 127 as of today. And, you know, getting back to the models and stuff, is that not a model number we should know? Uh, death rates at 127 now, at what point do we really become concerned? Uh, again, is that information that the public should know? I think we're past the point of whether we should be concerned or not. I think it's clear that we are concerned. I think yeah. just to be very clear here that we're way past the point of raising the alarm. You and I have said this on your show a long time ago that this is a crisis. And I think that we've seen this happen, right? Like we know it's testing us in all different levels. This is a major concern for everybody. We heard our prime minister today say that although many of us are practicing physical distancing, there is still so many more that are not. This is a, an issue that will continue to be an issue if we don't get ahead of it. I think now more than ever, we keep reiterating the same message. Physical distances must happen. Uh, we must be enforcing this and encouraging others around us to really comply with it. Uh, does it take, and I keep coming back to the modeling question, doctor, sure. which I know there's no answer to, but, you know, again, once people saw that number in the U.S., uh, upwards of 200,000 people could die. You could see it change the attitude of the United States. Again, 90 percent, 90, well, I don't know what the percentage is, but extremely high amount of people are cooperating. There's a few that aren't. Would that sort of modeling information scare them into reality? Or once you get to that point in the population, those people you're never going to change their minds well let me tell you something about modeling maybe this will provide some kind of clarity when we looked at earlier models this is back in february they were projecting that we will have by now by by the second week of march that canada will be seeing around twenty-five thousand cases uh, the point i'm trying to make here is that the models they do their best to try to predict but they're not always adaptive to current circumstances or new factors that come into play, which is like how fast we're able to mobilize our healthcare resources. How fast can we get supplies out there? Uh, how good is the community about physical distancing? Those things, although modern charts account for them, they're not a guaranteed. At the end of the day, it's just a model. It's a simulation. It's a prediction of what the future would look like. So you, I think that's part of the hesitation on our government to release those figures so early because you also don't want to get to a point where people take those numbers and raise the panic level unnecessarily. So I think that's why they're waiting to have all their data in place to really verify those models, check them before they release that kind of information.
Uh, question from a listener here, doctor. Uh, can you ask one of the experts uh, if there's a health policy regarding the allotment of respirators? If a 70-year-old person or a 30-year-old person needs one, heard from Sky News that in Italy doctors would decide who got them, who not. That's obviously in a very dire scenario. Uh, that would be an ethical dilemma for some doctors in Canada. What would be the factors? Age, wealth, dependence, ethnicity? Uh, there you go. There's a question from the public. A, a totally fair question. We've been hearing this question a lot actually we've seen it. it's true about the reports in italy that now they're having to choose between who to get the ventilators we don't have a current policy as far as i know uh, as of today in canada about that we actually did there was an article released in the global mail by the former international president of doctors without borders dr joanne liu a canadian physician who did urge the government to look into that and she specifically said we need to take the burden away from our healthcare providers of having them making that decision who would get a ventilator if we get to that point and we need clear clear guidance on where where that jurisdiction lies and who makes that decision dr ahmad khalid has been with us social sciences and human and social sciences health policy advisor wilford laurier university ahmad as always thank you so much for the time and insight much appreciated and you take care pleasure talking to you have a good day you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml how are we feeling in all of this? Uh, we, leave, we live in a very divisive world. Is this uniting us? Uh, more are concerned for the vulnerable to COVID-19 than their own health, a new poll shows. To talk more about all of this from Ipsos, uh, Daryl Bricker is with us. Daryl, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Always uh, appreciate the opportunity, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Daryl, we have talked at length on this show uh, prior to COVID-19 about what a divisive world we now live in. It seems either this extreme or that extreme. Uh, Your poll may indicate that perhaps this may unite us. Could this unite us post-COVID-19? Well, you know, we haven't seen an issue in which the whole world has been engaged as aggressively and as quickly by a single problem. Uh, in the modern age, uh, actually never probably in human history. Uh, and uh, as a result, um, you know, human beings are responding as human beings uh, tend to respond, uh, whether they live in, say, for example, France or whether they live in Canada. So, uh, you know, we're behaving like human beings would. Uh, there are some cultural nuances to this, but it is surprisingly um, um, surprising the degree to which people are behaving pretty much the same. So let's get into this poll. What surprised you about this, and, and how are people feeling? Well, the first thing, and it's really not a surprise to me because I've been tracking this for six weeks, but uh, um, it's a surprise to most people when you say it, given the way that we're talking about this, uh, this disease right now, and that's that people aren't really that fearful about them, they themselves having their health affected by this, uh, by this virus. They're actually more worried about other people being affected. So who's number one on their list? People who are uh, weak or incapable of taking care of themselves right now. So people who are vulnerable. Um, And we're almost two to one more concerned about that than we are about our own personal health. About 60% of us say in a list of things we looked at that that's what concerns them most about what's going on right now. What does that say? Well, what it, what it says is a couple of things. One, uh, we don't think that we're necessarily going to be uh, 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 physically hurt by what's going on with this disease. Uh, and, but the second thing is we know that it's a big threat to other people, so we're, we're worried about them. So probably, you know, the elderly, maybe you're, you know, if you have older parents, uh, maybe uh, you're concerned about people who are homeless or whatever. You, you believe that there are 
are people who are really being exposed to considerable physical harm as a result of this virus, but you don't think it's you. So uh, also in the poll, uh, uh, they've got uh, more respect, more appreciation for family and friends as a result of all of this. What about those that think differently from us, giving, going back to the divisive uh, issue? Well, most people actually do around the world do think that, you know, they're going to get closer to their family and friends. But you know what the surprising thing was for me on this, Scott? The number for Canada, by the way, is about 47. But uh, uh, when you ask people if they're actually happy to be home with their families, it's about half of that. Let's say they are. So, <laughs> so wait like, a sec. Yeah, what, what is I'm that? I'm closer to my family, but I may not necessarily <laughs> like it that much. So I'm closer, but I may not like what I see, which right. begs the question, what's going to happen after COVID-19? Is everybody like going to just go to the exact opposite? So uh, obviously, I guess what that says is they're appreciating the family more, uh, but certainly are aware of the differences and the challenges that can that can come with such seclusion. Right. You know, there always are, you know, writers and commentators and others that are trying to find silver linings in every, everything that happens. And, you know, and on, on one of the COVID silver linings is it's going to bring us closer together as families. And, you know, uh, it's going to give you free time to do things that are going to be really interesting. You're going to, you're going to come out of this and maybe learning how to play the piano or whatever. But when you ask people, well, I mean, they just want to get back to their, they want to get back to the way that things are. In fact, uh, we asked people uh, um, how they felt about, uh, you know, being at home. They're impatient to get back to their regular life. About 44% of us say that. So right now, we're prepared to put up with this situation because we believe uh, that it is, a, it is a considerable threat. We want to get it under control. Uh, yeah, we recognize that there might be some things that might uh, you know, bring us closer to our family. But ultimately, what we want to do is be able to get out of our homes and get back and live the lives that we had before. Do you think the results of such questions would be the same, say, a month from now? Yeah, that's what will be really interesting to see. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that we've seen in the, in, the, in the polling over the space of the last six weeks is how uh, really rapidly public opinion is moving. I mean, so I said, you know, 26% are concerned about their, their, their health. Well, when we were asking that question six weeks ago, the number was like five. Um, so the numbers are moving very, very rapidly. Uh, they seem to have peaked a little bit over the space of the last week on, a, you know, for example, concerns about threats and a, and a few other things. So we'll have to see if that's just a pause or they're going to jump ahead again uh, again next week. But uh, yeah, this is a this is an issue that's really very much in, in, in evolution. And you know, the other thing I uh, I keep hearing from people is the uh, you know our lives have changed forever and it's going to change this way, it's going to change that. We really don't know. At this stage of the game, we really don't know how this is going to affect, affect us in the longer term. But in the short term, it's having a very major effect. Uh, do you think that, and, and many have said this, because I've, I've had this discussion with many since this all started, um, especially around the divisive issue or, or changes that we've had to our life as a, as a result of this, uh, a result of this, will this stick after it's all over? And a lot of people said, nah, as soon as the doors are open, man, people are going to forget all about this. Do you think that'll happen? Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is we really don't know. I mean, there's some things, for example, like that we've seen people giving a lot of trial to, like uh, having more food delivered. Uh, you know, e-commerce has really accelerated through the course yeah. of uh, course of this. Uh, communicating um, uh, with uh, for both work and for personal time through technology using digital means has really accelerated too. 
So maybe there's some people who've picked up some new skills about doing these kinds of things. Uh, maybe there's some uh, some new services that we didn't know that we needed before that we found very convenient and we're now going to be taking advantage of them. There could be some effects that look like that that, that could have a, a longer, more enduring uh, impact on the way we live our lives. But at this stage of the game, it's really, really hard to say. Or what about the opposite? People find, you know what, I don't need that anymore. I, I, that, I, that's old school. Uh, that's not the way it is now. Well, it, we may very we may very well say that. I mean, so for example, if you're somebody who's working remotely, I'm sure you are right now, Scott. I know I am. Yeah. Um, that you know what what did I need that student for? I mean, there's a lot of you know uh, money wrapped up in uh, in the capital costs related to things like offices. Uh, and you know, my company uh, for the last two weeks, everybody's been working at home. Now, granted, you missed some of the social interaction, but is it worth the cost of the amount of money you pay for an office in downtown Toronto, maybe we'll start asking questions like that. So there may be some enduring legacies to these things, but I remember, you know, for example, after the Gulf War, and you know, everybody was really united in, uh, in the United States. There was only a couple of uh, parliamentarians that voted against it. You know, this was going to change the United States forever. We were all united in, in that particular circumstance where the Americans were all united. It didn't really have a lasting and enduring effect on, on, on the way that Americans thought about their lives. I mean, when you're in the moment, it's really, really hard to say what the impact, the lasting impact is going to be. And some of the lasting impacts may not be things that we can predict or we can even see right now. Uh, so it'll be a, a potential transition point in the way that people live. But how we will transition is very difficult to say. Uh, obviously, we've seen this with technology. Many have always said that technology is way ahead of society and way ahead of even our laws in that respect. But with all of this, uh, society took a giant leap towards technology, didn't they? Well, you know, the funny thing with technology is that people usually spend a lot of time talking about technology, about the technology, right? You know, how it works, how it's supposed to work. The one thing that's really hard to predict is how human beings would use it. So when the, you know, the inventors of the Internet came up with that idea, they were basically uh, defense contractors and, and, uh, and, and academics. Do they ever think we would be watching Netflix? Probably not. Um, so technology has to be looked at in terms of how it actually impacts people in the way that they decide to use it, which may be very different than the way that the inventors intended it to be used. Again, this is a wonderful experiment that we're going through right now to really test some of those assumptions. Daryl Bricker has been with us from Ipsos. A new poll shows that we are more worried about the vulnerable who are affected by this pandemic than we are ourselves. Could we be changing or is this what we're really like? Uh, Daryl, thanks very much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated and good luck. Stay safe. Same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've certainly heard from uh, many different uh, industries, groups, and such, uh, because COVID-19 affects everybody, and there's so many different angles, so many different layers to this onion. Uh, pharmacists, pharmacies, obviously an essential service, uh, like medical staff, they are on the front lines and, and keeping people healthy at this time. But obviously there are concerns for pharmacists as, uh, pharmacists as well. Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, Association, and he is with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. It's a pleasure, and thanks for having me on. How has this changed business at the average pharmacy? Well, that's a great question. There's certainly, we're experiencing unprecedented times, both from a pharmacy perspective, a societal perspective, and within all points of the healthcare system. And 
pharmacists have really stepped up uh, in the province to ensure that they continue to provide the optimal care for patients, even with all of the challenges uh, that this presents. We remain one of the essential businesses that are open to serve patients. And I think our biggest challenge is to manage the influx of patients that are, in some cases, dispersed within the healthcare system and looking for pharmacies for additional healthcare, community-based access to care. And we want to make sure we protect the front line, and pharmacists are certainly part of the front line when it comes to helping out with the uh, pandemic and also in serving safely serving their patients. What are the concerns of those on the front lines right now? Well, I think you're seeing two things. There's certainly an operational challenge, and as an association and working with our partners across the country, we've come up with some best practices on how to operationalize the safety within the store. So to protect patients that are coming in, in some cases, with symptoms that uh, could be COVID-19, and also to protect the pharmacists and their staff. There's a number of operational changes that are taking place. Physical barriers are being put in place, so you'll see plexiglass, uh, as you see in other parts of the system as well, in grocery stores, to protect and keep a, a safe distance. One of the challenges, of course, is that there is a shortage of PPE, that personal protective equipment, and this is true for all healthcare providers. The pharmacist can keep uh, you know, approximately two feet distance from a patient, but there are cases where they are in very close proximity. So we are advocating for pharmacists to be designated as essential healthcare providers, so that they have priority access to government stockpile of PPE. But that continues to be a risk for many of the pharmacy professionals who are concerned about getting uh, you know, the risk of infection and the vulnerability and bringing that home. And one of the challenges, if pharmacists do get sick, we could see potentially some store closures because they're not healthy enough to come to work and have to self-quarantine. And in those instances, then patient continuity of care becomes uh, a big concern. Uh, you talked about uh, the shortage of PPE, personal protective equipment. Uh, how bad is that shortage? What exactly you know, should every pharmacist have? It's a great question, Scott, because I think all healthcare providers are struggling with the access to PPE, not just in Canada, but globally. Um, there are supply issues. One of the challenges is that we need to prioritize within our healthcare system who gets access to PPE. And certainly as healthcare providers, we recognize the need for physicians and nurses and others in long-term care facilities in particular to have access to the N95 mask, which provide the the best protection in terms of protecting uh, exposure to COVID-19 in addition to the face shields, as well as gowns and procedural gloves. So recognizing the need and to prioritize, we're advocating for pharmacists to have surgical masks uh, and in cases where they can procure the, uh, the face masks as well, the shields, and use barriers and different operational procedures to keep themselves safe, like controlling the flow of traffic in the stores, creating a quarantine room for staff and patients should a symptomatic patient enter the store. These are all mechanisms for increasing the protection. The biggest thing we can do and that we absolutely have to do is get more tests and screening done of everyone in the in the country and then prevent people who are sick from entering yeah. into the pharmacy because we've implemented a number of measures to do more innovative things like home deliveries of medications. So if you are sick, call the pharmacy and we'll deliver those medications. 
Um, many may question why a pharmacist would need access to those uh, that personal protective equipment. You know, behind a counter, uh, usually dealing with the public, uh, you know, on from a safe distance. Why would they need those sorts of, of that sort of equipment? Explain. I think from a best practice standpoint, if you're well behind the counter and if you're support staff that do not have close proximity to uh, a patient, then that, that would hold true. But in many instances, pharmacists are in the front line and their staff, pharmacy technicians and assistants, and they're within that two feet uh, distance of a patient. In some cases, uh, inside Ontario and across the country, they're actually touching a patient, whether that's for an injection or other pharmacy-based services that go beyond just dispensing. So that risk of infection and spread of COVID-19 is very real. Pharmacists are on the front lines. It's a common misperception that pharmacists aren't frontline healthcare providers, but we are engaging with the patient on average 12 times more than other parts of the healthcare system. So that flow of traffic into a pharmacy where you're engaging and consulting and providing health-based services does present a risk for infection. So that's why we are recommending the surgical masks because that will help with that distance and maintain a safe distance while still performing the duties and safely managing the patients. Because we want to make sure that patients continue to get their medications. That's our number one priority. Um, Interesting question from a listener. uh, And you can talk uh, to this about prescriptions. Many people have said that, you know, they've gone to get their prescription rather rather than getting a 90-day, they're only getting a 30-day refill. Uh, this person wants to know why their prescriptions are reduced to 30 days from 90 when none of these prescriptions would be used for treating the virus. It's a great question and, and certainly one that I understand and appreciate uh, from a patient perspective, trying to understand the change in policy from what is typically a 100-day supply to a 30-day supply. And what I can tell you in the most transparent way as a leader within pharmacy that I can is that we monitor the supply chain with our supply chain partners, the manufacturers. We also talk to the distributors on a daily basis to look at the trends on supply. And the reason that the 30-day supply was put in place as a limit was to protect and maintain the supply chain. We appreciate full stop that there shouldn't be an additional cost or any financial burden to anyone accessing their medications. And we are working on solutions in a positive dialogue with government about ensuring there's no unnecessary or unreasonable cost transfer to patients. But the the balance we have to strike is to ensure that we maintain the supply where we are seeing some drug shortages so that even though it's an inconvenience on a 30-day cycle, that we continue to have supply and avoid any unnecessary drug shortages. Because what would be worse if we maintain the 100-day and what we saw happening in terms of a trend in the early days of the pandemic in March, early March, was people going in for early refills. Yeah. People were asking for six months' supply. Right. And that was out of the typical cycle. So that put a strain on the supply chain. So this is all to protect the patient and to maintain that continuity of care. Exactly the same situation we were experiencing with toilet paper. I mean, uh, people were going thinking they needed more than what they needed and were stocking up for long periods of time. That's why, you know, as, as with this particular question, if the medication has nothing to do with the virus, that has nothing to do with it in the sense that people are just going and stocking up because they don't want to go out. That's correct. And I, I should underscore, this is a temporary measure. 
So as long as we are going through this pandemic and as we continue to monitor the supply chain globally, as well as domestically, we will work with government uh, to lift that back to a, uh, into the normal, if you will, of the 100-day supply. I should point out as well that virtually every province has moved in this direction. So it's a, a nationwide effort. And there are other stresses on the supply chain. For example, if you recall in India and China, where a lot of the product, the uh, API, the uh, source material for the drugs, uh, their plants are shut down. They have in India countrywide quarantine. So that is going to have some downward impact in our global supply chain to supply. So the more that we can work together with our supply chain partners and pharmacists who every day work with patients to make sure that they have the medications that they need, as well as to make sure that there's no unreasonable financial burden on patients. We have to work together and we have to make sure that we understand that this isn't necessarily a measure other than to basically protect the supply chain and patients. Justin Bates has been with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, explaining their uh, their protocol on prescriptions and uh, giving us the COVID-19 view from a pharmacist's uh, point of view. Justin, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. And pass on to uh, everyone in the association that you can that we very much appreciate the great work that you're doing. Thank you very much, and I appreciate your time. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Eric Tuck, president, ATU Local 107. Changes have been made to the HSR service as a result of COVID-19. What has changed? Eric Tuck is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. Pleased to be here. Eric. Eric, talk about some of the challenges uh, that the HSR is being presented during these times. So, as you know, Scott, uh, the mayor has called for the uh, transit system to be there to serve the essential uh, people who need to get around the city for essential needs only. Uh, unfortunately, we've uh, the public hasn't been listening. They're not paying attention. And we've had excessive loads on our buses. Uh, in some cases, 20 to 35 people on a bus. Uh, with the... Uh, physical distancing restrictions that are supposed to be in place. This is far too many people to be on a bus in that enclosed space. Uh, what have you been doing in order to accommodate uh, these social distancing measures? Um, uh, you know, less people out, does that mean less riders, but you still need to provide that distancing, or are there more people as a result of this? So it's, it's kind of originally when this first uh, came out and we reduced our service to a Saturday level service. And we did that because uh, we had a number of operators that we had to accommodate through the legislation that had been passed. Uh, for example, any operators that had problems with child care and uh, issues or elder care, they had the older people at home that they had to stay home and take care of because their homes had closed or whatever. Um, so we knew we would have a reduction in the number of operators available as a result of that. We went down to a Saturday service, uh, and we um, actually put quite a few extras on to cover any needed uh, to allow for that extra distancing uh, so that we would have less passengers per bus. Uh, but we also went to the rear door loading and no fares. Uh, unfortunately, People at the beginning were listening to the warnings. I think they took it seriously for, you know, about a week. But then suddenly everyone started coming out again, and they're not taking it seriously, uh, which is why we've imp implemented these new measures. 
Uh, going forward, we are restricting the number of passengers on a bus to a 40-foot bus to 10 passengers, and a 60-foot articulated bus will pick up as many as 15 passengers. Uh, the other restriction we're putting in place is for the PMDs, the wheelchairs, or the electric scooters. Uh, there will be only one per bus. Uh, and we have about 70 buses that we can actually accommodate and um, put the ramp out uh, and lower the bus for the passengers. Uh, the rest of our fleet, we can't do that without going into close proximity. Uh, for that reason, we are asking anyone in a PMD or a wheelchair to bring an aide or an assistant with them that can help to deploy the ramp for them. Uh, unfortunately, we are not able to get the N45 masks. Uh, therefore, we can't go in that close proximity to somebody who's in a scooter or a wheelchair uh, without, you know, uh, violating that six-foot uh, six space that we're supposed to be respecting. And how will this, how do you think this is going to work out with the load that you have and the amount of buses that you have? Will this be possible to keep only 10 passengers per bus during the course of a normal day? Or is it just that things are so reduced right now, this is possible? How will this affect both the operator and the passenger? So we are going to have people waiting for three and four buses to go by before they're able to board it unless people change their habits. It's that simple. Uh, we've been trying to, to get the message out there in a nice way to make people educated, to understand that it's for essential service only. The fact of the matter is the buses are out there and we're putting our lives at risk uh, by providing this service for the essential travelers. And by essential travelers, I'm talking about we have a lot of home support workers who have to go from client to client to take care of them, help them get out of bed in the morning, get their breakfast, that kind of stuff. And if we're not able to provide that service, they're not able to get to their clients. So we're asking anybody who is using public transit, do you really have to make this trip? Right now, we're seeing a lot of non-necessary travel on our buses and i don't know if it's because we made it now free and you're boarding on the back uh people are just riding around and that has to stop you know the premier the prime minister the uh, officer of health they've all said we must have that physical distancing anybody who doesn't need to travel should be staying home and that applies to the public transit system as well uh, we, we even heard the mayor say uh, a few days ago, uh, very similar to what you were saying, that uh, be, uh, whether it's because it's free, I'm not sure, um, that people were just riding the bus. Uh, he was saying that some from one end of the route to the other. Is that a reality? People are just, uh, you know, those that perhaps have no place other else to go are, are riding the bus? So that is happening, and, and we've, we've tried to curb it as much as we can in a friendly manner, and now it's, we're going to have to not be so friendly about it. Uh, we're actually going to have to tell people, you have to get off the bus. And believe me, that's not in our nature. We're, we're transit professionals. We've never wanted to turn people away from our transit system. In fact, it's the opposite. We've always tried to attract riders to, to come to public transit. Uh, unfortunately, this is a serious health risk. Uh, you know, when you think about it, the premier tells you you can't go into the parks. 
you can't go in, you know, down and walk on the beach now in more than groups of, of four or five. But yet we're packing 20 to 35 people into a bus. It's absolutely irresponsible and it has to stop. Uh, and quite frankly, we're not going to allow it anymore. You're putting our operators at risk and you are putting the rest of the passengers at risk on the bus. Uh, and these are people that in some cases need to be on that bus. We have first responders who are who uh, depend on our transit service. We have medical personnel, support staff who run our hospitals, the janitors, those kinds of things. Uh, we got the home support workers, the home uh, care staff who are, are working in the uh, the uh, home care service industry, grocery clerks who are keeping our food service uh, uh, available. These people have to get to work. That's why we're keeping the transit system on the road right now, and we're not just pulling it, because we're, we are a critical service, and we recognize that, which is why we're coming to work every day and risking our lives. Uh, and this uh, COVID-19 is no joke. I'm getting reports every day from our transit properties in the States uh, of two and three members that are dying from this uh, because they've been exposed to the COVID-19. We need to take it seriously. Everybody in Hamilton needs to heed to the advice that is being given to them and stay home. Uh, what are the numbers right now? Do you still have all of your staff working? Have some staff had to be laid off as a result of this? Uh, or do you still have a full con- uh, contingency? Do you still have a full crew out there? Yes, we do have a full uh, full staff of operators right now. We have said sent some support staff home uh, who are working from home um, simply because we don't want to have them exposed unnecessarily. So we have several of them that are working from home. Uh, We have some who are actually on accommodation or or in self-isolation because they've had symptoms or been exposed to somebody else who's had had symptoms. uh, So they've been ordered to self-isolate. Uh, to date, we've been very fortunate, Touchwood. We have not had one positive case uh, in our membership of a positive uh, test for COVID-19. And quite frankly, I want to keep that record as long and if possible right to the end of this pandemic. Uh, the last thing I want to do is lose a member to this, and I will do everything possible to protect my members and my passengers. Uh, we're going to have to interrupt you right there. Uh, Eric Tuck has been with us from HSR uh, Union. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.